A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, friends and music nerds. Welcome back to the ongoing season three of the podcast. I hope you're doing well and have been digging the series lately. Hey, I should mention that uh, I love getting suggestions for the show, and a number of these episodes have come to fruition through listener connections or introductions. So if you feel like you might have a grand idea for me to peruse um, or to pursue, let me know. Okay, just drop me a line. I'm easy to find. This month, my guest is the mighty, mighty guitar player, blues man extraordinaire, Rick Holmstrom. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode. Rick Holmstrom. Where do I start? He's a blues guitarist, but there's some incredibly unique qualities to what Rick brings to the table and while he's been in the trenches playing dives and blues bars across the country for years and years, he's had a really sweet gig over the last decade as Mavis Staples guitar player and band leader, and he deserves every minute of that decade. If you haven't already listened to it, you should also go and check out the episode from season one. I can't remember what number it is, but it features Stephen Hodges, who is, uh, among other things, Mavis's drummer. And they got into Mavis's band at the same time. It was basically Rick Holmstrom's band that became Mavis's band. This is 10 or probably 11 years ago now. Uh, that's a cool episode. And um, these two guys cover some of the same ground um, and they were involved in a lot of the same West Coast blues history books. So go have a listen to that episode. You'll probably get a kick out of it. And there'll be some uh, parallels here to today's episode. 
Anyway, as a guitar player myself, I can confidently say that playing electric blues guitar is a really hard thing to do and sound like nobody else. And Rick is one of those guys. He rocks a Telecaster usually, although I've seen him play a harmony quite a bit too. I think it might be a Stratotone. Yes, I'm going to say it's a Stratotone. Guys like Albert King, B.B. King, Roy Buchanan, Albert Collins, Jimmy Vaughn, and a few others, and Rick are people that I can recognize they're playing with one note. And that's a really tricky thing to do, especially in, with, in the blues guitar world, believe me. He can play gut-wrenching blues with the best of them or funky syncopated rhythmic stuff or just the greasiest low-register twang you've ever heard. He's the perfect foil for Mavis's incredible voice. And Mavis is really interesting to me because at the point in her career that she was at 10 years ago, she could have easily drifted off into a Vegas-style classic soul review, and we never would have had her great modern albums that we do now. But she had the foresight to see that bringing on a more unique band of innovative and interesting players could be a better path to go down, one that is less traveled from some of these um, you know, more legacy artists that have been around and often aren't making the greatest decisions on their future careers. But she did, and we're all so glad that she chose that path. And with the lineup of, of Stephen Hodges and Rick Holmstrom and Jeff Terms, Termes? Termes? I never really know how to say his last name. Apologies to him if I'm blowing it. Anyway, I'll have him on sometime and apologize. Um, anyway, with those guys on board, she's been elevated to beyond iconic status in the music world, releasing really vital albums and playing a staggering amount of shows every year still. And Rick's a huge part of her success, and he continues to play and record his own albums too that we'll talk about today as well. Um, be sure to check out all the latest Mavis stuff at I actually, I didn't look into this, but I'm assuming MavisStaples.com. How hard can she be to find on the worldwide interweb? And Rick's own website, which is RickHolmstrom.com. And my conversation with Rick Holmstrom is coming up in just a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey man. How you doing? 
I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Maybe we could kind of start by talking a little bit about um, this whole amazing ride that you guys are on with Mavis. Uh, you've been playing with her for, I'm pretty sure it's over 10 years now. Um, and she has sort of like reinvented herself, of course, and she's putting out all these great records, a lot of them that you're involved in. And, you know, like playing festivals like Bonnaroo as a blues musician must be kind of weird enough as it is, but like this whole thing of Mavis is like where she's being embraced by, you know, the hipster kids as much as the blues crowd and the older folks. She's got this pretty wide ranging audience. Um, how's that, that whole trip been for you as far as being a part of it? Well, it's been an, an amazing run. I mean, we, we've been with her over 11 years now and mm-hmm. it's, you know, when we first started, I told Hodges and Termas, you know, Stephen Hodges and Jeff Termas, a drummer and bass player with us, who you know, I know, but yeah. Um, hey, let's let's do this. What do you guys think? You want to do? I, I'm I'm into doing this. I mean, I'm crazy about Mavis and the Staple Singers, but you know, this could last a summer. Or this could last a year, and and because we were just getting ready to go out and tour on uh, a record that I had just put out, and. This was like, well, this is too good to be true. But I really didn't know how long it was going to last because I figured they could make a different record next time around, not use us, and then decide they want to use some other kind of band that does something that we don't do. Yeah. And and I also knew that I didn't want to – I really didn't want to be a part of something where I was just the touring band. So if they started doing a bunch of stuff without us – that wasn't going to fly for me. So I knew I would be out of there, but um, it hasn't been like that. I mean, we, we were lucky right away. We did a live record at a little club in Chicago that, that was really fun and turned out well. And then we got busy with uh, working with Jeff Tweedy and that rec, you know, so one thing has led to another and, and we're recording with her and touring with her. And, and she's like a, an extra grandmother for my kids. <laughs> that's awfully nice yeah i mean you know, what's not the love about it it's just been it's been amazing um i don't know what else to tell you i mean she and she's got great management who's really attuned to you know making sure that she isn't <clears throat> i don't know that that I mean, mavis's personality is such and the, the type of things that she's into she's she knows all the latest songs like she could She'll, you all see her in an airport at a gate and we're waiting f- to get on our flight or something. And she'll just start singing me the latest, whoever, Sam Smith or Bruno Mars or, or whatever it is. She's and, hip to it. Yeah, she's into it and she's hip to it. And she's, so it's not that much of a stretch for her management to try to, uh, you know, encourage her to, to do things to keep, you know, a little bit outside of her box, maybe mm-hmm. just a little bit. Do you think it was her decision or more like, does she have really crafty management in like the, I think the whole thing of picking you guys up was so brilliant because she could have just as easily been touring like the casino circuit playing like with a sort of formulaic kind of R and B band or whatever. Uh, and, and sort of gone down that road, which a lot of people, frankly, her, from her era have done and her, you know, that genre, but, but someone had the brilliant idea of picking you guys up and sort of taking on this whole 
kind of new direction based around this freight train of a band that you guys have. Uh, so where did the, like, was that a management decision or was that Mavis like really progressively thinking about how she wanted to present herself? Well, no, it was management. I mean, it was, it, and it was Mavis being open to, to ideas. I mean, it was Dave Bartlett who met, who worked at Tone Cool Records when I were, when I was recording for Tone Cool, we worked together on a couple of the two records that I, I put out there and the three that I produced, co-produced with Rod Piazza. And he got out of working at, in the label business and went into management and Mavis was his first client. Okay. And uh, yeah, and she had a band that was kind of closer to what you're saying, really, really good players, but they were, um, they were put, it was a band put together by Pops at the very end of the Staple Singers and Mavis's solo career. It was kind of like when those things were dovetailing together. Okay. And like I said, they're really good players, but they were just a totally different thing. And Dave Bartlett, her manager, wanted to get it a little rootsier and get it closer to the sound of the old staple singers, but still be able to play the stuff like, um, you know, respect yourself. I'll take you there. Let's do it again. That kind of thing. And so he, he told me, I'd really think that you and Mavis would make a good team. You know, you kind of running the band and, and keeping it rootsy and, and, and all bluesy and all that kind of stuff and, and stripped down. And I was totally into it. And yeah, anyway, so that's, that's kind of what it is. And Mavis to her credit, uh, it was a very difficult decision for her to make, but she decided to, to do it. To ditch the, to ditch the old band. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, uh, that is, it's a huge decision. It's a huge decision. She'd been with those guys for a long time yeah. And I think she just kind of felt like the material that she put together with Ry Cooter for the We'll Never Turn Back record needed a different type of um, band live to pull it off. Those guys, I'm telling you, those guys can really play. I mean, they all went on to play in various uh, touring bands and stuff. So Yeah, it just would have been a different path for her, for sure. Yeah. When I talked to Stephen Hodges about how you guys started playing with her, there was some, from what I understood, there was some like thing where her band just like was late for a gig or something. And you guys <laughs> sat in. Was, is that really how that happened? That, there's like, there's three, I'll tell you real quickly. Uh, yeah, that is part of it, but that was the last part of it. The first thing was that they had me go and play, uh, I don't know, like three songs at the Handy Awards or the Blues Awards in Memphis. Okay. I think yeah. that was like 2005. So it was just Mavis and me. And that went well. And then and then they had this thing. They had us open for her on the Santa Monica Pier. That's what Hodges is talking about. It's a, right. it's a Thursday night free concert every week in the summer. So it's just packed. The whole Santa Monica Pier is just packed. And it's really fun. I've gone to a bunch of them. And... You know, so we're doing our 45-minute opening set, Rick Holmstrom Band. And I look over, and the promoter, I'm getting done, and the promoter's giving me this sign like, come on, keep going, keep going. And they go, well, you know that feeling. You've got thousands uh-huh. of people that want to hear, I'll take you there. Right. Not whatever I'm doing. 
And <laughs> so we play another couple songs. I look over and keep going. Oh my God, what's going on? Finally, he signals me to get off the stage uh-huh. and go down there and find out that her the, her band was stuck at LAX and they're late and they're, they should be there any minute. But can you guys please back Mavis up for a while? Awesome. So I go in and I talk to Mavis. I well, the easiest thing for us to do would be just, you know, can you sing some blues? Oh, I don't sing blues. Oh, man. Oh, no. <laughs> so we cobbled together, I don't know, three or four songs. They went fairly well. Mm-hmm. And the and the, the crazy thing about it, like, like one of the songs we played was The Weight. And you know that song has a, a, a minor three in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every time that chord came along, I couldn't remember. I knew, okay, <laughs> I knew the other chords. So I just faked my way through that because I, I didn't want to just hit a big old blind wrong chord. So I kind of sure. fi- filled through it. And, and while the whole time I had been playing my set during Mavis's thing, there's this guy off to the right off the stage with these big yellow glasses looking up at me, yelling stuff like, yeah, man. Hey, Rick, yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, who is this oddball? And I, as I get off the stage, we, when her guys got there, we literally just handed them guitar cables and sticks and stuff. And they continued the set. And this guy taps me on the shoulder, and it's Rye Cooter. <laughs> and of course so, it is. So <laughs> Rye dug the way we played with Mavis told her that, told her management and her record people and everything. And, and, um, and then, the, I mean, the last thing that happened was they had me play at the NAACP image awards with her, like a TV show thing okay. you know, with just a percussionist and a couple of background singers. And that went well. And so finally, after that, she said, <laughs> she said, it, Hey, Montana, you know, that's what she calls everybody who she doesn't really know their names. Really? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you a bad Montana. Hey, come with me. So, I, so I'm walking with her, you know, while we was playing that, that award show, like all these, you know, I'm walking along following Mavis and all these famous people are coming up and talking to Mavis, you know, and uh-huh. I'm just like, why am I, what What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? You know, Bill Cosby's coming up to her and all these people, you know. <laughs> and finally, everybody leaves and she turns and looks up at, up at me and she says, all right, Montana, you ready to make some racket? And I, I said, yeah, yeah. Because get your, get your band, let's do this. And that was it. The word came down from Mavis and you were in. Yeah. That's great, man. Was it like pretty hardcore touring ever since then? Like she's she hasn't had a lot of downtime, really. Yeah, I mean it's it's at the beginning it was kind of she didn't have a whole lot going on right at the beginning, so it was a lot of building and a lot of uh-huh. um, okay, this month's kind of slow. And when it, I mean, it took off when the Tweety record, when You're Not Alone came out. I mean that that really helped it. And then when we started touring with Bonnie Raitt, that helped it. And then it's just kind of steamrolled. In the last two summers, we worked with Bob Dylan. And so that put it up over, yeah. So, so now every, it's like every year you start to look at the schedule and go, it looks a little weak. 
you know, <laughs> but then boom, all of a sudden everything starts to come in and, and it's, so it's, we've been really lucky. Yeah. Right. How was the Dylan touring touring as far as like, was it a weird scene at all or was it? No, it was or? great. I mean, the only yeah. thing that's a little strange about touring with Dylan is that, you know, you're basically told at the beginning of the tour when Bob's around, just make yourself scarce. Right. And we had no problem doing that. I mean, we've got, you know, Hodges and Jeff and I are, you know, we are a unit. Or you, yeah, you, you see, you look over at the, you get there and you look up and go, oh, Bob's on stage. Okay, let's let's not be around now. Okay, oh, Bob's done. Okay, now we can go up to the stage, and you know, like last the last summer, I had a total of five words exchanged between me and Bob. That's quite a few. Yeah, it was the very last night of the tour. <laughs> At the, Be- yeah. the Beacon Theater, I'm saying goodbye to Charlie Sexton and all these guys in his band, Donnie. And, yeah. and I, I've got my gig bag on my shoulder, and I turn to walk behind the stage, the curtain behind the stage, and I look up, and there's Bob, like two feet in front of me. <laughs> and, you know, I've been, I've been with him for six weeks on this tour, and he hasn't said <laughs> jack to me. He <laughs> smacks me on the shoulder as we pass by and says, good job, man. And I said, <laughs> I said, thanks, man. And that was it. Wicked. Yeah. Well, that's quite an endorsement from a guy who notoriously says nothing to anybody. Well, then so the other thing that happened, the summer before that, we were touring during Mavis's birthday. And we saw they, they, they threw together this, this party for Mavis. And it was one of the rare gigs that was indoors. And so we were, we were it was a darkened backstage area and they had the crew and both bands and everybody's waiting and there's this big cake with a bunch of candles on it <laughs> and in walks this guy with a hoodie and a baseball cap you know i go all right bob's here you know we're passing by by bob in the in the hallway occasionally every but we didn't say boo to him none of us oh, yeah. bum rushed him or anything we were just you know give that's him, cool give him his space so bob walks right up to me and he goes, he's got it. He's carrying this little bag, you know, like a shopping bag. And he walks right up to me. And he goes, uh, so where's Mavis? <laughs> and I said, uh, well, she, well, she should be here in a second. We're just, you know, she should be here. He goes, okay. He kind of walks, he kind of steps back a, a step or two. And then he comes back to me and he goes, so this going to be a surprise? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I looked at him, I go, yeah, it's a surprise birthday party. And he rubs his hands together and he goes, Ooh, this is going to be good. (laughs) And then, and then Mavis came in, he gave her a little, uh, you know, he gave her the, he had a little, um, top colorful blouse top that she wore that night on the gig and in that bag that he was carrying hugs and kisses and all that. And then I stood next to Bob as we sang, you know, it was happy birthday to you. <laughs> that is far out, man. It was great. So when you're around the guy and when he allows himself to be a, a normal approached and talked to, he's funny and yeah. really cool. Uh, you know, but I think he has to wall himself off and you, on one yeah. hand, it's like, how can you blame him? And look, look, what's hap- look what happened to his friends. You right. know? We've sort of brought up the whole, this whole unit thing of you and Hodges and, and Jeff. Um, I would just like to hear a little bit from you about 
when you guys started playing together because I don't know exactly when that would have been um, and just what you dig about those guys and how that I mean you, you've gelled in such a powerful way I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that oh that's a cool question thanks for asking that that's great um, well Jeff and Hodge played together before I played with them with James Harmon and that, oh, they that were both w- with Harmon yeah, they, that was towards the end of Hodge's stay with Harmon. Um, so they kind of overlapped there a little bit. Actually, the first, I had a fake ID. I was 20 years old. I was going to the University of Redlands. And a buddy and I went to the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach and snuck in to see the James Harmon band. So Stephen Hodges was in the first band that I saw in a club in L.A., I, you know, I started, Jeff and I started playing blues gigs, I guess, probably in the early 90s together. Okay. And then it was not long after that that I started hiring Hodges to play occasional gigs with people like San Pedro Slim and Johnny Dyer occasionally. Mostly, Hodges and I were mostly just, we play a little bit together every once in a while, but he was always working with Tom Waits or, you know, he would be gone. And, and so I was playing with other people. He took a lot of photos. He, he, uh, he had the photographs for Johnny Dyer records that I was on that I produced and my own first couple of records. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Both, both of them are really unique musicians, I think, in that like Hodges is such a sonic scientist. You yes, know, like he, he is. He's just... Yeah, he's always treating his drums in a certain way. He's always bringing different stuff than most drummers would bring. Um, He thinks about it in a, he thinks about it uh, from the perspective of a producer, really, like looking at the whole uh, picture of the sound, not just playing his drums or the whole sonic image of of the drums and and the band and then jeff is a really sensitive person and a really sensitive player and he's plays so many instruments and he plays acoustic bass electric bass guitar slide guitar saxophone banjo Um, really yeah um he's he sings he writes his own songs he sings harmonies so when i do a trio gig with these guys it can seem like a whole lot more like you normally you go to see a guitar led trio and it's maybe like oh it's just so much guitar Uh but with them i can just not even i can just play hardly at all and i know okay i'm gonna have jeff play saxophone on this song i'm just just gonna feature i'm gonna basically play bass guitar for this whole song Uh uh-huh and it's so it makes the trio, I think, a more, you know, I don't know, entertaining unit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And by the time you guys started playing with, with Mavis, did you, like, were you already there? Like, did you already have that thing between the three of you? Or was that pretty early on in, in you guys actually playing together? No, we had been playing together for a while. And, and we had a side project thing that, that was really... Hodges's project it was called Bro Hondo 
and we used to play like every Wednesday. We, we, you know, we, we had a residency down at the Cafe Boogaloo in Hermosa Beach. Okay. And it was, it was kind of a revolving cast, but most of the time it was Hodges, Termas, and me. And then sometimes we'd have a second drummer or percussionist like Mike Tempo or Don Heffington or oh, cool. Steve McGallion. People like that would come down. We'd have horn players come down or maybe a, an extra guitar player, singer, songwriter person would sit in for a while. And it was all about somebody would start a groove uh, either on bass or on drums or percussion. And we would just fill it, come in and see what happened. Yeah, yeah. And so that was fun, you know. And, and so we had we had a lot of years of playing together, but when we got with Mavis, it changed it because one of the things about playing with Mavis is that there's five or sometimes six microphones across the front of the stage. Everybody's singing, you know, and there's uh-huh. background singers, and it's all about vocals. So when we got with her... I just really started talking to the guys and kind of, you know, and we started preaching to ourselves about let's embrace the space, you know? Ah, cool. Let's, let's let the PA do the work. Like let's, because we'd be playing these big festivals or opening up and you you get all this adrenaline and, you know, right before we go on stage, I go to the guys and go like, remember when everybody else would get loud, let's get quiet. And let's let these people sing and and bring it down to a to a simmer, so that when we get to medium volume, it feels like something really happened. Instead of staying at like medium loud to loud the whole gig, you know. Yeah, I get it. That's wicked. And is that something that you guys? spend a lot of time like working out and discussing or is it just kind of like an unspoken thing now where like are you queuing big dynamic shifts or is it just happening mostly just happening i mean you know i think that hodges and jeff both we all have played in enough louder bands for too many years and so it's, <laughs> you know, i mean i played seven years with rod piazza and those were very loud gigs were they? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was just stupid loud. Great band, but it was really loud. And so we welcome it. But every once in a while, we kind of have to remind each other, like, yeah, you know, hey, hey, this thing is getting a little loud here. You know, we got to right. scale this back. Let's bring this back to where it's supposed to be. And Well, there's a certain, there's a, there's like a heft to obviously the way that Hodges plays and your guitar tone is really hefty, I find. And like, it, it feels like it doesn't need volume to push a lot of air or something. Like it's just a big sounding band, whether you're playing loud or, or quiet, it's, it's going to sound big and heavy anyway. Yeah. I don't know. It's like one time we were playing Tweedy hurt, Jeff Tweedy heard a, a radio broadcast. I think that uh, I think somebody had done, somebody had recorded us playing at Newport uh-huh. and he said something like, it's, it's kind of like, Led Zeppelin playing gospel music. And, and I, at first I felt like going, screw you. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, all right, I kind of get what he's saying. I mean, it's basically bass, drums, and guitar, and vo- vocals. Yeah. And um, it's not what I would call it. It's, I don't know, man. I mean, it's just, 
Jeff and Hodge have a way of each each of them playing to where yeah. I I'm totally confident at any time that two of us could drop out and sometimes do and just let that one person carry it for a little while and just hey take a deep breath look around enjoy it don't don't freak out about it it's just it's like Junior Watson told me when I was young you know imagine it imagine standing there and watching a river go by and that's what music is it's just a river going by and you don't stop the river you don't try to move it into anything else you just jump in and go with it can you tell me a bit about working with Tweety in the studio like uh say like if we look specifically like at the latest Mavis record if all I was was black uh Maybe can you tell me a little bit about how you guys work together? Like how, how involved is he in the arrangements and and uh, and how you're setting up when you actually are recording? Like is it a real live scenario or are you sectioned off or how do you work? Well, okay, so it's been a bunch of records that we've made with him. So yeah. the, la- I'll, I'll, the first one is You're Not Alone. And yes, we're all set up close and there's very little baffling. I mean, they'll, they'll start off with none and then maybe they might go, oh, Rick's amp is bleeding into this. Let's put this little baffle here. But it's everybody's in and we're all it's it's at a volume where you could just be talking to each other. It's very, okay. very quiet, small amp. And you're could, using. Yeah, you're using something small like a. Yeah, like Princeton a, or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Champ, Princeton, yeah. Swart, little tiny amps. Yeah. He's got a ton of stuff there. And the drums are glassed off. You can see them, but they're not in the room bashing with you. So okay. you're using headphones. You got your own mix, but it's it's very natural feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a little dry, but it's very natural feeling. Is it all at, do you do all those records at his place? Yeah, they were all at the loft. Okay, yeah. So, so the first one was basically just, you know, a lot of live playing, um, a very organic thing. And then the second record, I just played. I the band wasn't on that one. That's called One True Vine. I played on a couple of songs, and Donnie, one of the background singers, sang on a bunch of songs. But that was really. A, a whole different type of thing. It was mostly Jeff and his son, Spencer. And then the last record, yeah, that was an odd one, but basically what it all boiled down to was it was kind of like we came in and overdubbed over top of demos. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was like Spencer and Jeff are playing and, you know, we're joining them. <laughs> it was kind of strange, oh. but it was in the same room, same, same process, and our, I mean the same type of, uh, you know, setup and everything. Do you feel like that represents the the thing, or do you feel like it's kind of like interfering in what you guys are doing as a live unit, or like how does that work? Is like it's kind of a different process than what you'd expect. Well, I mean, it's not the way I would have done it, but he's a producer and he's trying to do different things for each record, and mm-hmm. he has his methods or his reasons. So, um, yeah, it was a little odd, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, pre- totally. I prefer playing. You know, I prefer. Yeah. <laughs> like getting in there and everybody kind of, you know, playing a song a couple times and, and then the, the arrangement changing and 
yeah. people putting their heads together and, and it being a real collaborative thing, which is what the first record was, You're Not Alone, um, uh-huh. and the most successful record. But That live record, I think, is one of the great live records of the last couple decades, actually. Like, that that record to me is, is like, it's such a perfect um, recording of, of that band and the sound and everything was just nailed. I mean, I, I don't know if you felt like it was a good representation of the band at the time or not, but to me, it, it's like one of the perfect live records. Well, thank you. I don't know. That was, um, we had just started playing. We hadn't been with her that long. And uh-huh. man, up until about five, 10 minutes before we we did that, we, before we started that gig, I had the worst buzz coming through the amp. Oh, really? Horrible at sound check. I mean, it was just, you know, change this, change that. Nothing I could do could change this. And I don't know if you've run into that, but old sure. buildings in yep. certain cities, in, you know, Chicago's bad for it. New York's bad for it. I actually and, had that exact thing in, in New York recently where it was just, I could not get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, you know, the, the, the guy who was recording it said, ah, a friend of mine's going to show up. He's, he says he's got something that's going to help. And I'm rolling my eyes going, okay, God, you know, and <laughs> backstage, the management is introducing me to Tweety. You know, it's the first time we met Jeff was that oh, night, really? you know, and I'm kind of okay. like blowing him off going, nice to meet you, man. But I got to go. I got a terrible buzz. I got to go downstairs. <laughs> I go down there and I see this guy, Dave, the sound man from Buddy Guys walk in. I go, Dave, what uh-huh. are you doing here? He goes, I'm the guy. I, I brought this little he was the guy that they, they, they said somebody was coming to, <laughs> to save the day. And he and brought him. the early version of one of those debugger things. Oh, the hum debugger. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I plugged into it. Boom. You know, buzz gone. I saved the day. Wow. I wonder if we could just um, back up a bit and uh, talk about, like, I, I know you're from Alaska originally. Um, mm-hmm. Just maybe tell me a little bit about growing up there and and what your what your musical background was there. It it just seems like a a bit of a, an isolated place to get into the kind of music that you got into. So I'm wondering how that happened. Well, I okay. So I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I just guitar was basically just another little hobby, a toy in my room. You know, I had a basketball, baseball, football, whatever. Um, a teacher. Joan Roro taught me a few chords in third grade, like the cowboy chords. Sure, yeah. And um, and my folks took me to see Chuck Berry when I was about eleven or twelve or ten or I don't remember something like that. And he he was on fire. You know how Chuck could be really a hit or miss, and he must must have had a band. I think he had a band from Seattle, and they were real good. And and Chuck sounded great. And, um, and my, my folks were only, I mean, my dad was 20 and my mom was 21 and 20, I think when they had me. So, wow. Youngsters. Yeah. So they were still, my dad was a DJ when I was a kid. So he was really into like Chuck and Buddy Holly and little Richard and, um, and they were big Beatles fans. And my dad was also like a, you know, he was, in, my dad was into the stuff that the Beatles were into. Okay. Um, Alexander and stuff like that. 
Yeah, and, and probably more like the Buddy Holly and Everly okay. Brothers and Elvis type of stuff and Carl Perkins and all that. I don't know if my dad knew that much about soul music, but mm-hmm. a, a little bit. So that's what he did for a living? He was a DJ? He was a DJ. I mean, he early on he was a DJ and he then later moved into TV and other things like that. But that, So that had an impact on, on me, but I was really – I was a jock. I played basketball, ran cross-country oh, – yeah. I came down to California to to get to warm weather, and and I went to a small college and played four years of basketball at this small college. My senior year there in college, some friends had a band, and I started playing with them. And I just got, I was you know I just the bug bit me big time. Yeah. Okay. And that's what, what kind of what kind of music were you playing with that band? Like was it It was roots music. It was like you know, we'd be doing a ton of it was basically, you know, I think of back to it, I think of we sounded sort of like early Rolling Stones. I mean, we were playing like Chuck and Bo Diddley and Muddy and Jimmy Reed and stuff like that. And then we also did just one off, you know, whatever kind of song we dug that was kind of popular then and then mm-hmm. you know this is like 86 87 right so when you maybe threw an acdc song or a okay uh a, i don't know i'm trying to think of what we played you know so we were just basically playing for beer at parties <clears throat> it was a lot of fun a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But And were you like heavily shedding the guitar at that point? Like you must have gone through at some point in your life, you must have like sat down and just like got super into playing guitar. Well, at that point I was strictly rhythm and I just, I loved this band called the tailgaters from Austin. Yeah. We, we were really into them. Don Leedy, Keith Ferguson. I was into the T-Birds and then all sure. of that, that stuff threw me back into original blues. Like, you know, listen to Stevie Vaughan. Okay. I'm listening to Albert King and Albert Collins. Okay. I'm listening to the T-Birds. Okay. I'm getting into, you know, Jimmy Reed and, and, uh, and all the Excello stuff. And I just did, I just, I'm constantly working backwards. And I think part of that came from knowing as a kid, like my dad would hear me listening to Led Zeppelin or Aerosmith or just, you know, the Rolling Stones or something. And he'd say, you know, that's nothing but a Muddy Waters song. You know, that's a Chuck Berry song or that's a Buddy Holly, you know. Uh 
And so I always knew that, okay, I can search backwards. And people like Jimmy Vaughn were real important or or Junior Watson in, um, you know, turning me on to – to, to, to stuff to go backwards to listen to. Those kind of bands seem to have had an influence on your writing too. That sort of um, just slightly out of the box, but like influenced heavily by blues and, and stuff, but always mm-hmm. just doing something a little different. Oh, thanks. I mean, I think when I got out of school, I just, you know, I had that experience going to see Harmon. And then, then I started going to see, I discovered these kind of like ghetto clubs this whole scene this underground sort of semi-underground la blues scene because a lot of people left texas and mississippi in the 50s and 60s and moved to to california for aerospace jobs or whatever type of jobs you know know, people moved to chicago and detroit at one time and then another time they started moving west and so there was a lot of there were a lot of great blues artists here, like Smokey Wilson and Johnny Dyer, Finest Hasby. Um, you know, you could just go on and on and on. All these people that, at the time, nobody knew who they were. But then, a, right. a, a decade or two decades later, everybody realized, wow, there was a lot of really good blues going on in L.A. and it had it had always been going on. So Johnny Dyer lived in L.A. at that time. Yeah, he moved from Clark, Clarksdale, Mississippi area in, I think it was 58 when he was about, I don't know, he was 18 or something like that. And okay. he drove a truck for 30 years. And I caught him right at the tail end of his truck driving days. And I, I was done playing with William Clark. And Johnny and I were starting to do gigs around town. And next thing you know, we were touring. And just like as a duo or was it a full band? No, it was a full band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the William, the William Clark gig, just tell me how that came about because like, so how, how do you go from playing in a, basically like a college beer band to being like a, how do you do that? Like going from being a rhythm guitarist in that kind of a band to being a wicked blues guitarist <laughs> Like, like there's got, something's got to happen in there, right? So what happens? A lot so of luck. <laughs> a lot of luck. Well, okay. So I'm go. I get out of school, and I'm. I was kind of. I was. I was working as a freelance writer um, on this, and then. But I also had a guitar in the trunk of my. I had a '64 Ford Falcon, and I would go. Sweet. I would go, but back then it was still kind of like, it was kind of a junker. So it was, you know, it wasn't something anybody was going to break into. I'd have a Dan Electro (laughs) or Telecaster or something in my trunk and I'd go to the Pure Pleasure Lounge or I'd go to uh, Babes and Ricks or these various clubs and I'd see somebody play. And then on the break, I'd run out to my car, grab my guitar, sit in the back seat and try to play what I'd learned, what I'd seen. And then I'd go back in for the second set, get my <laughs> fried chicken dinner, you know, that, that you would get when you paid for admission. Uh-huh. And I never, I wouldn't sit in. I would just, and then later, maybe they'd start seeing me week after week and go, this guy plays, let's get him up here to play. And I'd play maybe the last song or something. Uh-huh. So I went to see William Clark, 
you know, which I'd done a million times before. And then, but he and he asked me to get up and play, and you know, I didn't think it went all that well. But I was really young, and I was really, I was a pretty darn good rhythm guitar player. My friend Zach Zunas got called to to go on this tour with Bill, and I was kind of heartbroken that. And happy for Zach, but heartbroken that I didn't get the call. <laughs> right, yeah. So he went out for one tour, and they had a piano player that had some health issues that couldn't do the next tour. So then I got the call to go and basically play rhythm behind Bill and Zach. Cool. And, you know, everybody in the band was a, a lot better than I was. I had to spend every, I mean, every moment with my Walkman practicing, trying to trying to get up to their level and finally finally they started letting me have some solos but but basically how i how i got my gig was i was young i could play i was hungry i was willing to take all kinds of kinds of abuse (laughs) yeah in in hindsight do you feel like you weren't even really ready for that gig oh totally i wasn't ready to play in the band's who were not even touring locally. I mean, I wasn't right. good enough to even really to be in those bands when I started off. But uh-huh. but uh, Bill was tough on people. He went through a lot of guitar players. And, did, eh? Yeah, and a lot of people kind of said, eh, I'm not doing that. And so, you know, it was a perfect situation for me. And I just, I, it was like extreme tough love. It was It was the kind of thing right. where, he actually grabbed the neck of my guitar a few times while while I was playing. <laughs> or he would, I would start, I would, there, you know, like that, to like to correct you or tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. Either you're, you know, you're too loud, or, or, uh, or here's one of the things he used to do was, uh, like I was, I was trying to learn a lot of melodies. I was figuring, you know, like me- melodies and rhythm are where it's at. So I had this one. It was a. Uh, it was Frankie and Johnny. Oh, Frankie and Johnny, sure. sweet, huh? You know, so I had this little Tiny Grimes thing, and, and I played it one night, and Bill's like, man, yeah, you sounded good, man. That was a, I like those melodies you're playing. Well, so I played it the next night, and he started soloing right over top of me. Uh-huh. And after, I waited till the end of the gig, and we're tearing out. I go, hey, Bill, how come you played over me? And, well, <laughs> man, you played that last night. Listen, motherfucker. I don't want to hear the same shit every night. You know, I hear a motherfucker playing the same thing one night. I don't want to hear it the next night. Like, oh, okay. So then, wow, That's then a hell it, of a way to teach a lesson. Yeah. So, so <laughs> when you're on the road with Bill Clark, it wasn't like being in some. I mean, he's a harmonica player, and he was he was um, very traditional, but it wasn't the kind of thing where you were okay, we're going to learn uh, juke and we're going to learn the each progression in the same exact order that little Walter. I mean, we didn't do anything like that. It was all. Was he pretty unpredictable in the way that he would perform songs? Like would he change it up night tonight? Or oh yeah, it was, there was no okay. predictability. There was no rehearsing. It was all seat of the pants. It was G like Jesus. And then he'd start stomping his foot. Well, that was your key and your tempo. Right. You know, and if you were screwing up or if you weren't on fire that night or if you didn't have enough melodies or enough, if you didn't hear something special in your playing, you wouldn't solo the rest of the night. Wow. 
So yeah, that's what, tough love. All right. Yeah. What it meant was you better be practicing your ass off every free minute and get up on stage and have something or yeah. you were in the doghouse. What a great way to learn. It was great, but it was also, you know, tiring. it was tiring. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, three years later, I, it, 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 I ended up quitting three years later. It was just, it, it was, it was nuts. Yeah. Did you, did you play on records of his or was it just live? I played on his, you know, I joined his band just as he was finishing his first, uh, alligator release. So he, he very kindly brought me in the studio to play rhythm on one song and I'm playing the same part as a horn section. So you can't even hear me, Okay, <laughs> you know? but it was really nice. So my name was even misspelled. My name was on the record. And then, yes, we did a bunch of recording. He did, he put out this LA blues anthology record that I played on with Smokey and Johnny and some other guys. And then by the time his second alligator record came out i was on about i was on a bunch of songs on it but he was so mad at me for leaving the band that he credited him just to alex schultz really <laughs> yeah oh, charming i mean alex is this great guitar player and a friend of mine who's on other songs on the record but the songs that i was on he were credited to alex i've had that happen to me too <laughs> it's like hmm, i don't remember it being that way but okay well it's a what it's it's a hell isn't it steve it's a hell of a way to learn about the music business isn't it it sure is yeah <laughs> so how long after that w w did the rod um, piazza gig come about because that was a big one for you you were with that crew for a while right yeah so i quit bill clark in the end of 91 i got a job part-time job selling running shoes Really? Yeah, just to bring in some extra money because I didn't want to go to work uh, either at a guitar store or, or I, and I turned down a few uh, uh, touring blues like harmonica player gigs because I, I just didn't want to join the next. The, uh, there was a whole bunch of people touring at that time. Yeah. And, and could you make a half decent living? Like you're living in LA, like what was the cost of living such that you could actually be a blues musician and do okay there at the time? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I was, I was super lucky also that I had a rental apartment. So I was living in Santa Monica, five blocks from the beach yeah. and my, my rent when I first started living there was $237 and 81 cents a month. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that 81 cents. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget <laughs> it. And I, I lived in that apartment with my wife, my girlfriend, who became my wife, for like uh -huh. 10 years. It was like $400 when we left. Wow. It was, you know, it was nothing. So that helped, um, yeah. you know, and, and we had two incomes coming in and yeah. all that. So I, I so there was like a couple of years there where I was just working that shoe job and playing a lot of gigs. I was backing up a lot of people coming through town. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did the thing with Johnny Dyer. I basically just made some cassette tapes for Johnny and I to get work. And I sent them to Hammond Scott at Blacktop in New Orleans, yep. who called me like five days after I mailed the stuff to him and woke me up Monday morning and, <laughs> and wanted to sign us. 
Wicked. Yeah, and his whole thing was, I, you know, I was trying to do Hammond's New Orleans accent, but, you know, like, I want to sign you all up and I want to put your name on the record, Rick, kind of like I do with Anson and Sam, you know, and uh-huh. it was just incredibly, I mean, it was a great thing for us. So, so I was able to take Johnny from his truck driving job and yep. just, just move him right into let's go on the road and tour. So we made two records for Blacktop. We toured all over the place. And then uh, in 95, I joined Rod and I was in there for seven years. Was that the kind of thing where Rod saw you playing with Johnny Dyer and he was like, hey man, come over to my band and or kind of, kind of, well, yeah. a little bit of, I mean, it's all like, it was all one big incestuous family, you know? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Johnny and Rod were longtime buddies and, and so Rod had seen me playing with Bill Clark and kept his eye on me. And uh-huh. I think he, he was real happy that, that Johnny and I got together. In fact, Rod was the one who told me to send that tape the cassette tape to Hammond at Blacktop. Okay. He's the one who really thought that we could do something with it. But then the, we did a lot of touring with Johnny and I think his back was starting to hurt him. And I think he was, I think he always kind of thought that it was glamorous and then we got on the road and saw how hard it was. Yeah. And so after a couple of years of that, I think Johnny was okay. You know, I, I remember calling Johnny and saying, I'm thinking about going with Rod. And I was tearing up, you know, and uh-huh. Johnny's like, look, Holmes, man, do it. Get out there. I, you know, this would be good for you. Good for you. I'm fine. I can, I'm just as happy. I'm just as happy playing at the corner bar as I am driving 500 miles to play at the corner bar in in Lincoln, Nebraska, you know. Mm-hmm. What was the Rod Piazza gig like as far as, was that, a, was that a pretty heavy touring situation right away? Yeah, yeah, I stepped into that um, thing and they were already going like crazy. And it was two vans, Rod and Honey and a driver were in one minivan. And then the trio, which at the time was Jimmy Bott and Bill Stuvey and I, and about a year later, it was Steve McGallion on drums. And Honey only wanted to be gone for three weeks at a time. So okay. we, we would have these tours that would come back home exactly three weeks from when we started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was not the case when in all the other touring I did. It was, in, you know, it just could be a month. It could be six weeks. You never knew. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a family saver too, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was good and it paid good. And, and Rod was real. That's one thing about Rod. And, and you you look at how long people stay with him, and it's because that's always a sign. Yeah, it's he's a really good band leader. I learned a lot about that side of it from him. You know, he pays everybody fairly. Everybody gets a chance to shine in the gig, and he's he's very encouraging. You know, as a so so it was a good, good it was a good thing. Yeah. How was your recording experience with him? It was great because he liked the sound of the Johnny Dyer records, so he had me come in and co-produce with him. Oh, okay. So yeah, so we went to the studio that I had done the Johnny Dyer stuff at, and he basically just kind of like turned that side of it over in a way, um, and he focused more on coming up with the arrangements and the material that he wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, there's Perfect. still 
you know, when it came time to getting his harmonica sound, it was still Rod at the at the EQ on the board twisting things pretty for ex- days on end for extremely. <laughs> but um, yeah, he he was. Um, I think he was looking for the roomier kind of old style sounds that I was getting with Johnny as opposed okay. to like more modern. And what about you and like your, your preference for guitar tones to me seems like you're probably going for a bit of that as well. Like you're, you're it sounds to me like you're usually using small amps and, mm-hmm. and maybe backing them off the mic by a few feet at least. Was that something you were working around back then? Yeah. I mean, my first sessions with William Clark at this studio Pacifica, I remember just you know, playing and then coming into the control room and going, ah, what? <laughs> like I don't, what? Huh? And it's because they would they would build this fort with like couch cushions all around your amp. Yes. And all the drums were in a drum booth, and everything was close mic'd. And then you realize, okay, when 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 it finally comes out, it maybe sounds a little bit better because they throw a bunch of digital reverb on it and they compress it some. <laughs> Right, but I didn't like the sound of those records at all. The, the Alligator records or the Alligator totally has that sound. I I just I didn't know what. All I knew was that okay, you play me that, and then you play me. I don't know T Bone Walker, Pee Wee Creighton, Gate Mouth Brown, Little Rich, Little Richard, Jimmy little, Reed, Jimmy Reed, yeah. Little Walter. You go on and on and go. I will walk into the studio and just go. Okay, wait a minute. Okay how about if we just only use three mics and we pull the drum mic way off? What does that sound like? And so I play the, have the drummer play for 30 seconds and record it and go back in the room and go, Hey, that's, that's better. That sounds like being 10 feet away from a drummer listening to him. That's yeah, kind it, of the way that you want to listen to a drummer. And then when you listen to the guitar, you go, you know what I think? I mean, so talking to Glenn Nishida, the engineer at Pacifica. When I hear those T-Bone Walker records or Robert Nighthawk or B.B. King, I could swear it sounds like I'm hearing his guitar coming through his, his vocal mic. What do you think? Uh-huh. Yeah, let's try it. Okay, well, so let's pull a mic uh, like 10 feet from the amp instead of right on the grill cloth. And let's, let's hear what it sounds like with a, with a condenser mic, like yeah. real close to the guitar. Boom, there it is. Wicked. You know? I, I I'm not so. I no genius or anything. It's just, that's what I heard, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool that you had the time and the, and the foresight to actually experiment with that. And, well, we didn't have anybody breathing down our necks, but, you know, there was no label presence or anything. It was just, you know, just get us a record by June 8th, you know? Right. Right. And did you have to do, make those records like super cheap? I like they were probably pretty low budget affairs, right? Yeah, I mean, because everything was always. I mean, the very first Johnny Dyer record I just paid for. I just went in there and because I wanted oh, cool. to make some cassettes to get yeah. to get gigs. gigs. Yeah. So so then what what happened was, you know, when we got signed, I they said, "How much do you need?" And I told them, "Well, the record costs this, and I'd like to give Johnny, you know, a thousand dollars, and I'd like to pay." the band guys, a certain, you know, like on top of whatever time he put in, I'd like to give Johnny a little extra money. Yeah. So I would always build in a little buffer to be able to pay everybody. The cool thing about that, the cool thing about that was it was never like, 
okay, we're coming out or we're bringing you in or it was, it was like, I need this much money and I will, when is the date? I will deliver the record by then and I will give you photos and we'll work together on the art. That's every label's dream come true right there. Well, and it was, <laughs> it was my dream come true in that I didn't have to do all that other mumbo jumbo, you know? Yeah, totally. While you're making all these other records, you also started making your own records. And I'm just a little like curious about how that goes for you. Like as far as, are you always writing material? Do you feel a strong inclination to make solo records? Or is it just something that happens every few years? Or how do you approach making your own records? That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, t- very today. You, I'm sure you deal with this. I mean, today is, it's a weird world. I mean, it's, yeah. my, my experience is it's almost like, does anybody even care anymore? Because there's just so much music and there's yep. so, so little, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's a strange thing. So for me, and now it's been, I'm trying to think what is been six years now since I put out my last record and my last one was a double record. So that kind of, that, that wiped me out. You know, that I was fatigued by, that was uh-huh. a stupid idea trying to really? do, do two records at once. And so I had a period where I just didn't want anything to do with writing or any, I was just burnt out and very busy with the Mavis thing and very busy with my kids and stuff. Yeah. And now I find myself with, okay, yeah, I've got 12 or 13 songs now. I think I need to do this, but uh, I'm, you know, who's going to put it out? Is it, am I going to do this myself? I've never done a record where I've actually been the label, you know? Yeah. yeah. I I don't really have much uh, desire to do it because I'm so busy already. Right. I don't get it. So, you know, eventually I think what's how it goes for me is that, uh, maybe after I make some money touring this summer and fall, maybe next fall or winter, yeah, I'll um, I'll get in the studio and start recording and try to find a home for it somehow. What I like about your records, like it's got that same thing with like that you do with the, with the the Mavis band, like it's the same guys. I think um, mm-hmm. so. I'm talking about like Cruel Sunrise is the last record I ha- have of yours. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there's also like some pretty cool, like modern, well, I I guess modern in the sense of like, not pure simplicity. Like there's some interesting harmony vocal stuff. There's like doubled vocals that happen that are really cool, I think. And guitar sounds are really awesome. Is that like, do you, do you like to experiment in the studio as far as the sonics go? Oh yeah. I mean, I did a record in 2002 called Hydraulic Groove. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, you know, that was basically I played on a R.L. Burnside record or the guys in my band did. And, you know, it was they would have they brought us in the studio. It's probably like I'm guessing this is 99 around then 1999. And they just would say the producer says, um, play uh, here. And let me play you this tramp groove by, you know, Lowell Folsom. Uh, or let's let, let's listen to this Aretha Franklin song, or let's listen to this um, Slim Harpo. I mean, just on and on. And then he would just have us play our versions of those and get real greasy with it, and and 
you know, really get authentic tones and everything. And then they, they sampled us instead of sampling like old records, they sampled us. Uh-huh. And then, then they brought it to RL and had RL sing on it. And so I did that with hydraulic groove. Basically I brought my guys in and we just would cut everything up. And so, so the answer to the question is yes and no. I mean, I'm, I've done that. I got into hip hop at that period, like in the late nineties, I got into hip hop a little bit, but it was already, I was already listening to like old school. hip hop. <laughs> right. yeah. I'm listening to like tribe called quest and, and, and I was also starting to listen to some DJs and stuff. People that took the, took break beats and did interesting things with them is what, uh-huh. what got me going. So I did that and it was fun. And I took a band on the road and we tried to recreate it live and it wasn't uh-huh. so much fun. That's, that's when, Oh really? No, I mean, it was, it was fun to blow people's minds. It was fun to go into places where they didn't expect that. And all of a sudden to have, you know, strange sounds coming off the stage that they weren't used <laughs> to hearing. Yeah. Yeah. But it became this thing where we got locked into the same thing every night. And so, I jettisoned that fairly quickly, like a year, year and a half, and started and got went exactly the op, 180 degrees the opposite, and that's when I started paring it down to the trio. This is like 2003, 2004. Uh-huh. Only a year or two after Hydraulic Group came out, I was already onto a whole different thing because yeah, it just. It was a fun experiment, but there's no sense of staying there if you're not inspired. And what was inspiring me was like Mose Allison, Ahmad Jamal, like stuff that's super uh, space and, you know, uh, dynamics involved. That was always what struck me about a Mose Records was, was space and dynamics and awesome tunes. <laughs> yeah. And that stuff that I was doing with with all the hydraulic groove, it was just every space was taken up. Every inch right. of space was was some. You know, we were we were doing stuff like the drummer had. We were playing two loops, like we had a full four four piece band. Yeah. But he was triggering loops, and then I had uh-huh. an amp, like a keyboard amp, next to me that I could control the volume of, of the of the loop, so I could hear the loop. And yeah. I could hear the drummer and the bass and the organ, but uh, but we had to remember those arrangements because if you went one progression too long, and some crazy loop would start in, or some voice would right. come out at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would get that would get frustrating after a while. Yeah, I mean, so it was it was real, it was really fun to do it, and I learned a lot, but. Were you I, playing to blue, to like traditional blues audiences and freaking them out? Is that who yeah? Was it was like shows? that, yeah. or or but then because we were, you know, John Medeski was on a few songs and DJ oh, yeah. Logic had had remixed some stuff and you know so we occasionally would do we were opening for Los Lobos at one point we were doing crazy you know other gigs and then we would come into like the zoo bar in Lincoln or I don't know, various blues clubs, <laughs> you know, I forgot mm-hmm. all their names, but, and we, so we'd be playing the dinosaur barbecue in Syracuse or Rochester and we'd be playing that same stuff. And, you know, you could just see the look on people's eyes like, Holy crap. Some people really dug it. 
and then some people really hated it. <laughs> I remember, That's good, though. Yeah, it's good remember, to be polarizing. <laughs> I remember playing a gig with my friend Teddy Morgan in Tucson, Arizona. And he gets, we get done with the gig, and he comes up to me and goes, Holmes, that was so cool. You didn't play one shuffle all night. <laughs> You're like, he couldn't believe it. And I said, well, you know, I, actually, Teddy, I kind of miss playing shuffles. I miss it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, sometimes you got to just not do it for a while. Yeah. I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's your birthday and you got stuff to do. I just, I got one more question I just wanted to ask you um, because something that I think is really remarkable about you and your musicianship is the way that you're a very identifiable blues guitarist. You've got a sound, you've got, you know, like a wicked tone and a way of playing that's very recognizable. But you, at the same time, you're a, you're kind of like a, the perfect sideman. You're able to complement singers so well. And I think that's why you get, you know, some of these great gigs that you get. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about being a sideman to a, to a singer as a blues guitarist, you know, and still being able to get your, get your licks in and do the things that you do. But all the time you seem to be supporting the singer and pulling that off better than most people ever can. Um, you know, pop staples was great mm. at that as well, obviously. Well, um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for <laughs> mentioning pops's name in the same paragraph that I'm mentioned in. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, a lot of luck and a lot of being with the right people. Um, I mean, come on, I'm with Mavis. What do you, yeah. I mean, it's, she gives me a lot of room. I get a lot of solos. I'm kind of like her foil. But, yeah, she does. That's true. But yes, it's not a, it's not a solo happy uh, featuring Rick Holmstrom kind of gig. And I'm actually kind of okay with that because I do more on my own, in my own band, in my trio, when we do gigs. But even then, I reach a point after a couple songs where I'm just like, man, I'm sick of myself. I just, I want to, <laughs> I want to hear Jeff. I want to hear drums. I want to, I want to hear quiet. I want to hear a song with no solo because I don't know. I'm just not. First of all, I never was. I was always a rhythm player when I started, and the soloing only came out of my rhythm playing and uh -huh. I was a reluctant soloist at first and then um, not so reluctant anymore, but yeah, yeah I, 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 I try to approach it from the standpoint of the listener, I guess, you know, like if you're just there, how much can you really take, you know? <laughs> and what do you really want to hear? You know, what, what I go to hear somebody Sure. Okay. If I'm going to see, let's just pick a great night of music. Let's say, who's the singer that I, that I, um, let's just pick a singer. Um, let's say it's Aretha. Okay. okay. Aretha, Aretha is a great singer. Let's, let's pick a drummer. Okay. Let's, let's, let's say, um, Idris Muhammad. Okay. Okay. Piano player. Let's Ahmad Jamal. Okay. Let's pick a bass player. Let's just go with Jeff Dermis. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I don't know. Uh, and Sounds like a, a hell of a band to me. Yeah, let's pick a guitar. Let's pick Mark Rebo, okay? I love okay. Mark Rebo's playing. Sure. And you put all that together, sure, I'm going to want to hear Mark play some solos. Sure, I'm going to want to hear Ahmad play some solos. But 
uh, I'm going to want to hear some singing. I'm going to hear Aretha sing. I'm not going to want to. It's going to. I'm going to want it to uh, complement the overall uh, experience. You know. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah, luck. I mean, I've been with Mavis. <laughs> I toured. I toured for a few weeks with Booker T. And it, how did that happen? Because you know they they had this Mavis and Booker had the same management for a little while and somebody dropped out and we happened to be uh off that time and so I got to spend 3 weeks on the road with Booker T I saw you actually we played a, a festival with you in Europe somewhere I can't remember oh, yeah. maybe or something but yeah I saw that show it was killer I loved it That was our uh that was the second show Okay yeah, yeah. we played we played one gig in New England, and then we flew right over there and played that gig. And like, how does that happen? Well, luck. You know, I mean, I'm not going to attribute to anything else. You know, I've been really fortunate. I don't know about that, but um, I'll I'll take your word for it. But, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> there's definitely more to it than that. But uh, I just wanted to thank you again for spending this time on your birthday. Oh yeah, with me. that was fun. Yeah, man. All right, man. Thanks again. All right, take care, Steve. All right, I had a blast talking to that guy. That's Rick Holmstrom. Go check out his music. Go buy his music. Go do what you need to do. Go see him play. Go see him play with Mavis. Go see him play with his own band. He's around. He's awesome. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers.